I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. With me today, as always, is that gorgeous barbarian, Jeff Goad. <laughs> I seem to be missing a hand this time. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> easy come, easy go. Maybe I'll get a hook or something. There we go. And with us today, we are very excited to have special guest Angela Murray, co-head gnome of at Gnome Stew, uh, primary host of the Gnome Cast, and co-founder of Rogue Princess Squadron blog. Uh, so... Hello, Angela. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you on. We always like to ask uh, our guests how they got into gaming, you know, their secret, you know, superhero origin story. So, you know, bless us with that. So my secret origin story uh, takes us back to the ancient times of high school in 1986. Mm -hmm. I was sitting at the lunch table waiting for my friends to show up reading some big fat fantasy novel with a dragon on the cover. I have no idea what book I was reading, but it was very obvious fantasy. And one of my friends brought the new kid from her, you know, because this was the very beginning. This was beginning of September. She brought the new kid from her class to lunch with us. And he happened to sit down across from me and he looked at me. He's like, oh, I see you're reading a fantasy novel. Do you play D&D? And I was like, no. And he's like, do you wanna? And I'm like, yes. And that was how I was dragged quite willingly into playing D&D. Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, I think it was about two years before second edition came out. So we were in first edition. My very first time playing, I showed up. They handed me a character and said, here, play this one. This person's not here today. Uh, and it was a, it was a halfling thief. And um, the, the adventure was a total TPK. Uh, we got caught in some sort of charnel house room as we were descended upon by hordes of orcs. And I hid under a pile of bodies and failed my stealth roll and, you know, ended up dying with the rest of the party anyway. Oh, oh no. <laughs> were you ever forgiven by the player of that character? I don't think I ever actually met the player of that character. I don't think they ever came back to gaming. Okay. <laughs> And so this was, as you mentioned, was about two years before second edition. Did you go straight into second edition when it came out or did you stay we with did. first edition? Okay. We did. We, we, we went straight to second edition when it came out. And, and pretty much those first few years of, of gaming were all D&D. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't really play anything else. Uh, my, my friend Tom, who introduced me to gaming, he had gotten the very pretty enticing Shadowrun book, but we never actually played it. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't until I was in college and Tom joined the Army Reserves and was no longer running gaming that I found other people to game with and we started playing other stuff. And with mm -hmm. them, I got introduced to Champions and eventually World of Darkness came out. And, and I noticed one of the themes of your blogging was that although you had been gaming for all this time, that you were a relatively new game master. And that was one of the things that you were really trying to support in your blogging for you yeah. know, people to sort of demystify it. 
and, and make it less intimidating. Yeah, and I mean, at this point, it's I don't think it's fair to call me a new GM because it's probably been about 15 years at this <laughs> point. But compared to the span of time that I have been gaming as a whole, it really took a long time before I reached that point where I was comfortable enough to to run. And it really came down to the fact that one of the folks in my second age of gaming life uh, group uh, he was like, so when are you going to run a game? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I can't run a game. He's like, what are you talking about? Of course you can run a game. You're a good player. You can run a game. When are mm-hmm. you going to run a game? And he kept just doing this gentle, persistent pushing because he knew that if he wanted to have a solid gaming group and have an option to play, he was going to have to help push people into running games too. Sure. And after that, I kind of started getting the confidence. I'm like, oh, okay, this is not the mystical, you know, unattainable situation that, you know, where you have to have complete, utter system mastery to ever sit down. Because back in the 90s, when I played champions with folks, it was, you know, it introduced me to a whole world beyond the the tropes of D&D. But, you know, there was still very much this, if you don't have this, the mastery of the system, your players are going to just run all over you and destroy you. Right, so right. you need to have you know, the system better than the players do. And I mean, that is such utter BS. Yeah, right. I agree. Well, and champions in particular, because that the character builds are like so optimizing and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Min-maxing. Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> I think a lot of those kinds of views that were popular in role-playing games in the 1980s, we've kind of, as the decades have gone by, have said, you know what, like that, that really wasn't working. This idea mm-hmm. that like the 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 game master has to be like the absolute uh, holder of all knowledge, and it's like no, we it's it's fine if we're all working together to figure this out as mm-hmm. long as everybody's like got the spirit of the game at heart. Yeah, and it's it's I will tell my players, you know, I'm not 100 percent sure how we're supposed to do this, but this is how we're going to do this right now, and if we need to adjust it later on, we'll fix it. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I'm a big believer that when players run games, they become better players. Mm-hmm. And when uh, GMs play in other people's games, they become better GMs. Right. Well, they develop more empathy, too. I am actually fairly wary of anyone who says they only like to GM. Right. You know, because the the people I've met throughout my my many years of gaming who are like, oh, I only ever GM. I don't like to play are usually a little bit power controlling. hungry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a little bit controlling. Uh, and they're usually not very good GMs. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's, that's not to say, I mean, you can have a group where one person always ends up being the GM because no one else is willing to take it on, but sure. for the most right. part, you know, as long as you've got, you know, other people willing to try and you want to play occasionally, you can still learn to become a better GM. Well, I find right. I find that I'm more engaged when I am GMing than when I'm playing just because, you know, I'm, I'm just ADD enough that <laughs> when I'm running a game, I'm so focused on it that like I'm, I'm, I'm constantly there. But as a player, if it's not my turn, and somebody else is spending a lot of time doing their thing, my mind can wander a bit. Right, right. And I have for, to reason. For Go that ahead, reason, I tend to find uh, GMing a little bit more exhausting. Mm-hmm. Oh, I enjoy yeah. doing it, but I can't do it indefinitely. Whereas I could be a player indefinitely. Right, Because right. I can totally. take those those moments to just kind of lean back, let other people take the spotlight and not mm-hmm. have to be completely and utterly engaged 100% of the time. Right, right. 
I hit that four hour mark and then like I, I kind of lose my I start losing my ability to like really kind of keep track of mm-hmm. initiative and which monster just died and which character just did what to who. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> but uh, so moving this forward. So you uh, started with Advanced Dungeons and Dragons and the Appendix N is in the back of the AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide. Were you aware of the Appendix N at the time? I was not because I was told don't look at the Dungeon Master's Guide. (laughs) Again, it was this, you know, the GM was treated as this mystical being of power. And if you did anything to, you know, try and cheat that, like looking at the DMG, you know, that was, that was bad. You're not supposed Mm -hmm. to do that. And so I was vaguely aware of it. And I think I eventually got my hands on a copy of the dungeon master's guide because um, I, I tentatively tried to run for my younger brother and some of his friends, but that didn't go very far. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never really dug too deep into the appendix. And, you know, it's like I was familiar with some of the books that were listed, but yeah. never really dug too deep into them. Right. But you were already a, a pretty voracious fantasy reader, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you eventually circle around to those books or is that still something that's still sort of a you know, um, terra incognita for you? As we'll get into when we start talking about the book, most of them weren't necessarily the flavor of book that really caught my attention. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I, I'm still not a fan of any of the Lovecraft stuff, so that stuff was out of reach. I did sit down and read the Elric books at one point, mm-hmm. but they were like, okay, I, I guess I can see the influence, but this guy's kind of a jerk. And <laughs> and I have, a, I have a thing about, you know, like, you know, I've, I've realized this over the years. I have a thing where I have to actually like or empathize with the protagonist to really enjoy a book. And mm-hmm. the Elric books was just like, I don't like this person. Right. I mean, Why he's am never, I, I would about say him? never read Eyes of the Overworld. <laughs> 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 you will not enjoy that right, book right. at all. Uh, but so moving this forward into Fritz Leiber's Swords and Ice Magic, let's go ahead and start by discussing which edition of the book we are working with. I have the 1977 first edition paperback, and Angela, it looks like you've got the same. I think I think it's exactly the same. Yeah, right. it's, I know it's it definitely the uh, the, the copyright date in here is 77. It's an yeah. Ace book. Uh, mine is uh, I bought it used on Amazon, and it definitely has you know, shown the signs of love of many years and being read over and over again by somebody. Right. And does yours have a Newport cigarette ad inside of it? I don't think so. I have a, um, uh, I have a, an ace book ad in the back (laughs) with an ace playing card. Right. Oh yeah. I've got a full color Newport cigarette ad. (laughs) And I also have a fold out. um, What if, fantasy book club uh, you that go. you can subscribe to right. kind of the Columbia Columbia house um, version right. of. Yeah. No, I, do, I do have an advertisement for fuzzy sapiens right, by H. Beam Piper in the back Indeed. of the book, which I did read back oh, in the 80s. Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you do have to have a paperback version of this, this book and that's the, the version that you guys have are the best because it has that full bleed Michael Whalen cover, which is just gorgeous. It is. It's, yeah. It is. It is a very beautiful painting. Right. Yeah. I have the today. I have the White Wolf uh, Return to Lankmar H hardcover, and it's with uh, Mike McNola cover illustration. And I mean, some, that's still pretty gorgeous too. It's it a is, nice it looking really book, is. and it has a bunch of little Mike McNola sort of like chapter headings and and what have you here. So, uh, 
Very cool. Very cool. So, uh, Jeff, do we have a high Gaxian word before we get into the uh, the library? Funny you should ask. We actually do. And our high Gaxian word of the day is... Allurophile. Allurophile. And allurophile is found on page three of my copy, at least. And it says, But now, at this very instant... By death's crooked, dark-alleyed, plodding, hidden, almost not quite from himself, the thin wrists of the benign monarch of Lankmar were being pricked in innocent play by his favoritest cat's needle-sharp claws, which had by a jealous, thin-nosed nephew of the royal allurophile been late last night envenomed with the wind-swift poison of the rare emperor snake of tropical clesh. It's a very long <laughs> sentence. And a lorophile is a cat lover. There you go. Well, I mean, I should know that word because, you know, I'm, I am the crazy cat lady of Gnome Stew, so. <laughs> I am also the crazy cat lady. I've got, uh, well, I guess I only have two. How, how many kitties do you have? So technically, I only have five, but we have six in the house. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you beat that. Uh, Everyone always rolls their eyes when I'm like, technically only five? (laughs) Yeah, the ones are a long-term guest. Yeah. (laughs) We can head on into the library and... um, Angela, uh, from what I'm getting hints at, I'm 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 getting the idea that maybe you aren't the biggest lover of swords and ice magic. But before we get into that more deeply, I'm curious: Have you read any Fafford and Grey Mouse? No, stories I had prior not. Um, and I think that may have been part of the problem. Is um, so the first half of this book is just a collection of short stories that I believe from what I, from what I understand were written over the decades of Fritz Lieber's career. Um, I don't think all of these stories were written at the same time. And the first half of the book is not really a good introduction to these characters. Um, Cause like the very first story, which your Allurophile quote comes from is basically from the perspective of death, trying to kill a bunch of people to make a quota. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and it's like it, it's interesting, but Fafford and the Gray Mouser are, are just these, you know, they're almost they're almost just fleeting characters at the very end of that. Yeah. And it wasn't a good introduction to the way they handle women in this series. I would right. agree with that a mm-hmm. lot. You know, it's it's that first story is a little rapey. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. (laughs) And so is the second and so is the third. Yeah, Um. (laughs) I was was starting to get is I I was reading these first few stories. I'm like, you know, I'm I'm old enough and have been reading fantasy uh, and science fiction long enough that I can intellectually pull myself out of what I'm reading and understand that this was written from a different time period that the you know the the author was definitely not as woke as we would expect somebody to be now and things were handled differently and I can kind of step back from certain things but then there's also the wow this is kind of rapey and these guys are kind of skeezy right. you know and like the focus the focus of so many of the 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 first stories in this book is solely on sex Mm-hmm. And them finding somebody to have sex with. And none of the women in these early stories are anything other than an object 
to be, you know, attained or won or convinced. And he literally uses the word object at one point. He says they saw an object standing in the doorframe or something. And then he describes the object as being four foot 11 and weighing 80 pounds. And the object uh, was a naked 13-year-old girl who is smiling like a 17-year-old. And then they start arguing over who gets her. Um, And then, like, and then not that long later, they're talking about um, your taste for maids newly budded. And I'm like, oh, oh God, this yeah. is gross. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like, like I said, intellectually, I can step back, understand that this was written in a different time period. There were different, mm-hmm. uh, you know, different expectations and understandings of things. But it's still like, oh, God, that's gross. Right. And that's it's just... unfortunate, too, because Jeff and I have the context. And if you do go back to read the earlier books, that while it was never politically correct, there was it was more ribald, if that's pronounced correctly, rather than sort of skeevy, the yeah. previous mm-hmm. relationship they had with women. And that there was sort of an interplay. Um, it was sort of more like screwball comedy where the women are sort of very challenging, you know, and they're right. very sexy and they're very challenging. And we don't see that t- except until maybe the last story in this book or maybe a little yeah, bit. Of- so the like the, the, the first one has the, you know, pretty much outright rape of a character. Um uh, then there's the one with the the 13 year old with the 17 year old smile. Yep. Then there's the one where they're stalking a half naked woman through the streets, and then she turns into two different monsters and attacks them. And it was like, okay, well, they're they're first of all they're stalking her. Mm-hmm. It's very clear what their intent is. Yep. Um, and I mean, a little later there is the one story where it's basically they're being tortured by the gods they have turn their backs on and they're basically given all these little snippets of scenes with the women they have been with over their years and getting rejected and beat down. Okay. That was a little amusing, but it was still like not a good introduction to these characters. No, no. And the only thing I was talking about, we have a a pre-show sort of um, book club for some of our Patreon um, patrons who can join in and talk about it. Um, And I was mentioning that the only little additional bit of context um, and I hesitate to be completely autobiographical when I talk about fantasy books, but Leiber's uh, wife, Jonquo, was a really driving force in his career. Uh, she was the one who actually wrote the letter of introduction to H.P. Lovecraft, and which sort of launched him as a, a writer because they had started being pen pals. And she had died, I think, about 10 years before this book was written. And then he went in sort of a real tailspin. And so these stories were sort of written in that tailspin period. And so I almost wonder if there was sort of like these weird old ruminations that were going over on his head. And it really shouldn't have been published, but things that he was just sort of like working out in his head. Um, and then, you know, it sort of comes out of it a little bit towards the last story that we read. But it's still, as you say, it's not, it's a pretty dark period in this yeah. story. Yeah. And Yeah. And this is the sixth Fafford and Graymaster sto- uh, collection of stories that we've read. And this is by far, like by leaps, my absolute least favorite uh, like the next least favorite, I liked way more than I enjoyed this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting is the last book, the fifth one in the series, was actually my most favorite. And it's one of the best ones we've read in this entire project. But yeah, Swords and Ice Magic really, it, it goes between just kind of like shockingly gross and like really dull. Yeah. There's a lot of real, like there's there's so much going on with this kind of Rhyme Island two-part um two-part novel novella 
that like it really drags and it's confusing and I'm not quite sure what's happening or why things are happening. I, I will say I enjoyed the second half of the book more mm-hmm. um, because like, oh, okay, now we're getting into an actual story rather than these weird snippets mm-hmm. of the fantastic. And and yeah, they're doing they're, things. Where yeah, in, the, in, in the first few stories, like things are kind of happening to them and around them, but they're not doing anything really. Right. Yeah, and it was like the the first stories didn't give me anything about who these characters are, other than that Fawford is big and the mouser is small. <laughs> you know, it's like that's really all I got from the beginning of the the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the the second half, I'm like, once once the the the, the frost monstream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, once that one started, I'm like, oh, okay, some stuff is actually happening. And yeah, there's long stretches that are, it's like, this could have been, you know, better explained. Like, I still don't quite understand what happened to the actual frost monstrum ice thing, threat, right. darkness. I don't like, it was there, it was there, it was there, it was threatening them, it was threatening, it was dividing them, and then it was gone. And I'm like, right wait, what, what, what happened? You know? And I mean, part of this is that I'm, I'm, this is written in a much older style and I'm definitely more of a, a modern reader. Like one right. of the things I lamented as I was reading the beginning of this is like, I really like dialogue. I like good <laughs> snappy dialogue between characters. It's one of the reasons why I really love the Jim Butcher books is like, even if his plot is off the rails mm. and doing something weird, it's like the interplay between the characters is always interesting and fun. Uh, and in this one, there really wasn't, there were, there were snippets of it, but not anything to hold on to really well. Mm-hmm. And there were certain things, like I said, I still don't understand what actually happened to right. the big ship monster iceberg i don't understand what it was the the threat right right Uh, did those snippets intrigue you enough to want to potentially go back to some of the earlier stories and sort of understand the dynamic between the two characters to be completely honest i have really fallen off the wagon of reading regularly um Mm -hmm. uh i haven't it's it's in part it's the um i've been doing a lot more reading of game books Mm-hmm. Um, and generally haven't really found time to dig into any novels. Um, so maybe, but probably not anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, did, it, it did make me want to have a bit, little bit of a better understanding because I know these characters are beloved. Right. You know, like I, I've listened to gaming and BS. I know how much Brett loves these characters. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. you know, so it's like, I know they're beloved, but. You know, so I would be more interested in finding out why that is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you are curious, you don't even need to read a whole other collection. But there are a handful of really fantastically fun Stafford and Graymaster stories that you could just go ahead and read one of those. Like mm-hmm. you could just read Ilmed and Lankmar or Lean Times and Lankmar, right. uh, one of those kinds of stories. Now, you were mentioning being confused by the Frostmon stream. I was very confused by all the Loki Odin stuff in mm-hmm. the final story. Um, did any of that confuse either of you guys at all? Because I was having a hard time following some of that stuff. I mean, I have to say that the moment they said that the Grey Mouser looked like Loki, I could only see Tom Hiddleston. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right. I, I, I don't think it confused me. I was a little surprised that, that, that real, you know, like, 
like uh, like real world mythology was being brought into this very fantasy based setting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't really it didn't really throw me at all because I, I guess I didn't have many expectations for the way they handle things in this setting. Right, right. I mean, there's something of weird eruptions like that, Jeff, in the past, like that weird German scientist in Swords of Langmar who just popped yeah. up out of nowhere with his space helmet on and he speaks German to them and they're like, what? And, there's that and he's other like sp- riding a giant sea serpent. Right. And there's that other story where they get transported to sort of like the, the Near East the, in, like, in like the year 400, you know, 400 BC or something like that, or 200, 200 BC. Um, so there's weird things where he sort of, has them slip in and out of of like so there is definitely like parallel universes in these stories oh yeah um but portals in space and time are absolutely but, a thing in this world you know loki and, and odin are trying to get new worshippers but they're also both kind of very dark nordic gods so their way of getting worshippers also involves actually like killing some of their worshippers right so it's not just like oh you know you know, Hosanna, 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 I've got more worshipers. It's like, okay, this is how you're going to worship me. You know, you're going to get burned or uh, so. Um, or you're going to wear these pretty little nooses around your neck. Right, exactly. Um, and, and it is a, a nice reminder sometimes because we like to think of, um, like my, uh, one of, again, one of our guests was saying that we, maybe we have Stan Lee and Jack Kirby to blame for, like, everyone thinking that like, the Norse gods are all, like, kind of benevolent, you know? Uh, you know, and they're all, yeah, like... you're saying that, like, the, like, the idea of Odin as Santa Claus. Right, right. Odin is, you know, Anthony uh, Anthony Hopkins and, you know, <laughs> Thor is Chris Hemsworth. And um, also, I, I grew up with the... Um, the Dolaire's Norse mythology book, which is written for younger readers and has gorgeous artwork. But again, they're sort of more heroic, the uh, the Norse gods. When in yeah. fact, Odin is the god of the gallows, the hanged man, god of magic, and Loki's malicious half Jotun, you know, half giant, half god. So they're very malicious trickster figures, or yeah. they can be. Um, and it was a good reminder from this book and when some of the other Appendix Ben books we had, like The Broken Sword, that Odin's quite a dark figure there as well. Um, and that the gods are not to be trifled with, right? But as you say, like, what are they, how are exactly are they accomplishing things is a little, um, you know, a little vague. I, I agree with that. I did feel the, the, the Rhyme Island one, the, the Rhyme Island section of the story was a little, a little less, there were, there were sections that were like, okay, this is long, you know, long, you know, much too, uh, you know, using much too florid language to explain something that could be explained a little more simpler. But then again, that's not necessarily the feel the author may have been going for. Mm -hmm. But I felt like the story was a little easier to follow as to what was happening. Mm -hmm. Um, Other than the little side jaunt that Fofford had to rescue... Uh, the the girl Mara who'd been taken by the invisible sky person whose sisters hated him but got mad at Fofford when he cut off the guy's hand and just right, right. I'm like okay this is this is all stuff calling back to older stories that I don't know right right and that section also included a really uh, a, 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 a quote I want to read just because like there's a, a potentially a lot to unpack there but he says uh, women kept on making you feel guilty even beyond their deaths. Whether you loved them or not, you were invisibly chained to every woman who'd ever kindled you. And mm-hmm. it's like, yikes. That yeah. is a strong statement about uh, women. Right. Well, again, I think that definitely has to do with his wife having passed, like, not that far in the past. And that's, like, still, he's, like, ruminating on that and working that out, you know. In that. And and I, I, I did enjoy that, 
I did appreciate that at least in, while they were introduced in the Frostmont stream in Rhyme Island, Sif and Afrit were, they were more real characters mm-hmm. than any other woman in the book had been presented as so far. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, like they actually had personality. They actually had some agency, mm-hmm. you know, they, they were, they were more, inv- you know, there were still these occasional misogynistic comments. Like I, I was a bit amused by the section where Grey Mouser was following Sif and the, 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 the whores uh, yeah. into these tunnels. And he was just like, what am I doing? Why am I following these women? Right. What is my life? Right. right. Um, you know, which was like, there was the part of me that's like, that's kind of rude. And then the other part of me is like, okay, that's, that's amusing. Right. It's like, he's like, like the, the priestess, the whores and the witch, right? Cause the yeah. old mother grum, mother grum is going on. <laughs> um, I also liked when Sif was uh, making fun of the story that we were reading as well in a weird way and kind of a weird meta way, because there's the moment where Sif is letting them know that Thor and Loki was keeping her informed of all of the things that they'd been doing. And she says, so we were able to follow the details of that long flight or your long pursuit, which, truth to tell, became a bit monotonous. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I was like, you're right, Sif. Right, right. <laughs> that whole section was a bit monotonous. Right, right. <laughs> and, you know, I did also like the bit where Efreet is sitting down during that break on the, the hike to the north part of the island. And she's sort of ruminating about, like, what mm-hmm. her role is in bringing Odin back. And is she sort of a bad person for sort of essentially semi-pimping out her nieces to odin you know (laughs) right you know she's like am i a monster yes i'm a monster you know um but you know it was an independent scene it was her really thinking over like what is she doing um in the same way that the fafford and the mouser had these moments of self-reflection earlier in the story it was actually more of okay this is a real character instead of just an ob i mean like the characterization like of a lot of the side characters is very flat you know you don't get a whole lot of feel for a lot of the other characters in the book unless it's like a side character in one of the short stories that's more of the focus like the bit where death was kind of getting pissed that they weren't dying like he right. wanted to <laughs> right. uh, which there are two of those uh, yeah. you know but for the and most some part, of those parts were pretty fun and funny yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it was just like, what you're you're really bad at your job, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things that I, I really love about the Fafford and Grey Master stories is the city of Lankmar. Lankmar is just such a rich, exciting, fun city, and we had almost no Lankmar yeah. in huh. this collection, which is a real, real shame. Um but I guess that is a good way of potentially kind of segueing this over into the gaming side of the conversation. Um, you know, AD&D, both first and second edition, had Lankmar, um, had a Lankmar city setting and some Lankmar published adventures. Did you ever play in those, read those? No, I didn't. Um, uh, a lot of my early D&D experiences were very... Um, Normal sorry about the background noise. Um, uh, were very, a lot of my early D&D experiences were much more focused on... Uh, uh, Greyhawk uh, mm-hmm. and more generic settings like that and then a little further into the 90s there was more focus on Forgotten Realms so I didn't get any of the, the city the, the strong city based campaigns of Lankmar um, until much later in the you know in the uh, 
actually much more recently, like the, again, uh, Brett Blazinski's, uh, Streets of Avalon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I listened to the, the, the actual play of not actual play. Yeah. The actual play podcast of that game. Uh, and, uh, I've done my own, um, I, I ran, uh, Waterdeep Dragon Heist okay. for my players, which, you know, it, at that point, I wished I'd had a little more experience with Lankmar. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and so I was a little disappointed in this book that, you know, Lankmar is like the third character right. of the series, and they were completely absent from this book. Right. Yeah. And Lankmar is in many ways sort of the quintessential fantasy city. Like, I would definitely say City of Greyhawk is definitely heavily drawn upon that. I'm sure Waterdeep is. Uh, city State mm-hmm. of the Invisible Overlord as well are so heavily influenced. Um, yeah, as you say, it's the third character and might even be like the most important character because, yeah. you know, <laughs> um, you can have Lankmar stories without, you know, Fafford or the Mouser, but <laughs> you can't really, as we see in this book, it's really hard to have a Fafford or Mouser story without Lankmar, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. And a little bit of fun side trivia is that originally uh, Fafford and Grey Mouser were supposed to be in Alexandria and H.P. Lovecraft talked them into, I uh, talked Fritz Leiber into setting it in a fictional, in a fictional city. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. He's like, yeah, you know, you, why, why put yourself handcuffs on yourself by, you know, by trying to set it in a historical t- time period, you know, you can go ahead. And yeah. And I, I, I would imagine that gave him a lot more freedom to just, cause I mean, there's a lot of wild concepts Mm-hmm. in this book and not all of them worked but there's a lot of wild concepts and i don't think those would have worked as well tied to a real world setting so you know rye mile i guess we would say is probably a sort of pseudo iceland it would be probably the closest mm-hmm. that we can get to you know given that that's a relatively more sparse setting would you still think that would be appropriate to maybe at least start a campaign in like here we have you know it's a kind of reasonable scope we can do nautical we have overland we have a couple of volcanoes you know we have things that um honestly it depends it depends on what you're going for um i would i would say you know if a gm wants to focus their campaign on exploring a very sparse setting like that then it's good to start the players there or on their way there mm-hmm. um, and, and have them know that up front. I, I played in a, um, a seven seas campaign where we all made our characters and were tied ourselves very much into that European setting that's in the main book of seven seas. Uh, and the very first session, the GM basically shipwrecks, shipwrecked us on a tropical island mm-hmm. and it was like okay but why did we just put all this work into this backstory and background and all these plot hooks back in yeah. our homeland and now none of it is useful at all for mm-hmm. yeah. anything and you know so you you want to you know if that's your goal is to explore that kind of give that to your players up front mm-hmm. sure. um, i think if you can absolutely do a campaign in a setting like that you just have to you have to know what your players are interested in and if your players are interested in more social stuff then maybe that's not the best choice and you actually mentioned something interesting which is that i think it's fair to say that um you know we all want to have rich characters but that earlier periods of gaming did not emphasize having a strong backstory at the very beginning of play 
as opposed to more so now. Do you have preference between that, those two styles of play or, you know, Actually, modes of play? I, I, might, I might argue with that because I would say there were, there were so many players in the 80s and 90s who would sit down and write a five-page backstory true. for their character. They play once before you're killed at the entrance to a dungeon because the GM accidentally grabbed a higher-level module than the characters you made. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's... There was, I think now it's most of the games I've played in and most of what I see encourages more creating backgrounds that aren't necessarily deep and detailed as much as they are offering connections Connection and plot to hooks. the other players and the world itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's the change that's happened, whereas back in the day, backgrounds were much more you know, singular solo focused stories about a single character rather than integrating them into the world that was going to be part of the game or the other characters that were going to be part of the game. Right. I think that's the private fantasy that a lot of people had before they could stay in constant communication with, you know, the internet and email. So you would start creating these stories because you would have like a week or maybe two weeks Uh between sessions to do this. Whereas now we can sort of like communicate with our fellow players and GM. It's like, Hey, what if my character has this right? Or blah, blah, blah. And the GM's like, that's a good idea. I'm going to run with that in the next session. And there was a lot less, there's a lot less focus on creating, creating a party of characters that had, reasons to be together you right. have everyone creating their character in a vacuum and then expect it to magically turn into this cohesive party right. you know by randomly meeting in a bar and talking to a shadowy person in the corner right you know you always have like, that assassin paladin problem exactly, yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> or, or the thing where you you trust every character you meet who's played by another player but you don't trust any character you meet who's played by the dungeon master right <laughs> well why it's like you? oh yeah i just ran to you on the road sure join our party let's right. go into the dungeon together yeah or you get the one player who refuses to trust anybody right. and is like pulling teeth to actually try and get into the plot yeah well it's what my character would do and it's like okay great well maybe try playing a character who actually like <laughs> can engage in the story the very first blog article i ever wrote was about the reluctant hero and how it doesn't work in role-playing games if you don't realize that the whole point is for the reluctant to hero to go along with the adventure anyway. Right, right. <laughs> right. It can't yep. it, it has to be some it can't not in a traditional like D and D. Maybe there's certain sort of other games that sort of can mechanize the reluctant hero where they can sort of like build up some extra, I don't know, bennies or PowerPoints by sort of like being reluctant in a certain scene or sort of like being deliberately sort of losing in one scene in order to come back stronger in the next scene. And that would have to be more of a story game type structure. Yeah. That sort I, of focused I've, on I've drama. Actually, I've actually gotten very um, brutal, I guess, with characters who refuse to do stuff with the other characters or follow the plot. I will flat out tell them, okay, that's great. Your character can go do that. But now you, the player are going to have to make a new character that actually wants to be involved. Right. Yeah. <laughs> hey, makes sense to me. You right. know, I, I had a friend who she experienced some trouble in her game group because she had one player who refused to engage with any of the plots because of this trauma she'd given to her character, which is understandable, but she was also like, 
completely like of the opinion that it was the GM's responsibility to make it so that her character should could be involved. No. Nope. Yeah. And it was like, no, no, that's that not. is the player's right. responsibility. Right, right. Not how that works. Right. Yep, right. Yep. Yep. I'm I can only see that working like in a sort of one-on-one again, one-on-one or more deliberately story game structure that is about that character overcoming their traumas rather than exactly a, a sure. group, now, a group activity. It's, it's it's it is the GM's responsibility to make sure they're providing a game that is going to be interesting to the players and the characters they've presented. Mm-hmm. But it's not the GM's job to you know handhold that character the entire way through the game. Sure, sure, I agree. The, the GM doesn't just say, "Oh, here's a plot hook. Go follow that now." Uh, that just because you have a plot hook does not mean that the players absolutely have to follow that thing. Uh, you have to provide something that the the characters actually want to uh, interact with. Uh, but even so, you do as, as you're saying, you need to have uh, characters who are willing to work with each other and pursue common goals. Right. right, right. And I think also it's important when you are playing, we'll call it archetypes. It could be tropes. If you're being unkind, it would be cliches. Um, <laughs> but if you're talking about various settings, um, okay. Oh, okay. You want to play that shifty thief type? Great, except that we're playing as part of a military unit where you all have to trust each other. So how would a, thif- a shifty thief type work in that context, right? Well, maybe they're the scout who goes ahead and, you know, lays the groundwork for the rest of the party to come in and, and you know, do their thing, right? You're not going to be playing PvP in that situation, right? Um, so how to, like, incorporate those tropes where they're appropriate to the setting and the dynamic that you're trying to, you know, play at the table? I'm a, I'm a big fan of... Offering the players a framework for making their characters at the start of a campaign. Um, I ran an Eberron campaign where I said to them, you can make absolutely whatever character you want to make, but you have to have willingly joined this mercenary company in service to the country of Brayland and served in the company until the end of the war. Right. You know, As long as you fit those three things... I don't care what you make, but you have to have agreed to those three rules, which are why these characters know each other and will work together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great way to, to, to set up a new campaign or a new storyline. Is yeah, if, if you walk in with exactly those kinds of expectations, then it's really clear to the char- to the players what they need to do mm-hmm. to be able to really uh, you're, you're setting them up for success. Right, right. By doing that. Right, and um, you know, so lately I've been running the uh, Yun Suin setting. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. It's, it's um, it's hard to describe, but it's it's faintly, faintly uh, Tibetan, faintly sort of East um, South Asian setting. Um, it's an OSR setting as British writer created. Um, but there's a Lankmar-like city, but it's ruled over by this uh, upper caste of slug people. But there's all these humans, and then there's all these sort of tropes from India, Tibet. Um, but there's none of the typical fantasy races except there's dwarves, right? Um, so I said, okay. Well, we'll have the dwarves, and the dwarves are mechanically exactly like other D&D dwarves, right? There's no changes in the rules. But I said, okay, it's fine. You want to play a dwarf? That's fine. But it cannot be a Viking or angry Scotsman, right? These dwarves <laughs> are not that. I also, I because I play both traditional games and story games and indie games, and, you know, I, I have a wide variety of experiences of what I played, I have no problem pulling different things from other games and putting them in games. So I I will, when even running a D&D campaign, be like, okay, why would your character be involved with this group? And put it mm-hmm. on the player to 
you know, come up with the reason why their character is involved, which is much more of a trope from a story game than it is right. from a traditional like D and D game. Right. Right. Yeah. So, and it's like, surely like, like, Clearly, like a game like Fiasco is a story game, and a and a game like Labyrinth Lord is a trad game. But I feel like a lot of those kinds of um, those tags and those definitions for a lot of other games really aren't as applicable mm-hmm. and aren't as important. I think a lot of people just kind of want to force these. Um, right, it's a spectrum, I think, and yeah. there's, there's useful tools that even if they're not formally, you know, form, formally used as such, we can say, oh, here's a concept that is useful for us to bring right. into this back and forth. Um, so circling back briefly to, uh, swords and ice magic, is there anything that you saw in there that you would, you know, import into your game either directly or just like as a concept, like, oh, this is an interesting idea that, you know, we can use, whether it's like the idea of the henchmen, like if they have, each have their henchmen or any of that <laughs> stuff like that. I, I, I've never played in games where we've gotten to the point where we've had extensive groups of henchmen or followers or anything like that. It's like most of the, the, the campaigns I've played are much more focused on the characters themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I, I thought about while reading this is the, the climactic scene where the mousers in the maelstrom and he's got the, uh, the, the gold cube and he's tied the the fragment of Loki to it, and he's going to throw it in, and that's going to solve the problem. And I was thinking about how you work that type of moment into a role playing game because you know it can be very difficult sometimes to you know want to have one of the, like a climactic moment like that where it's like this is going to be the catalyst for all the rest of the things that happen and the end of this this storyline and. You know, how do you get to that moment without telegraphing it to the players that this is the thing you need to do? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and for me personally, I tend to be like, I could see this happening and this is probably a good idea, but I don't want to tell the players outright. So I'll tend to like wait until they seem to come up with something on their own and just nudge them in that direction that do yes. this thing. That's right. the, mm-hmm. that's the thing you need to do. Right. Right. And if you leave players enough, um, <laughs> you know, I don't want to use the hangman's reference, even though it is appropriate for this book. Uh, yeah. if you give them enough rope, they'll right. eventually do something weird and fantastic. Absolutely. Right. And what's really fun as the, as the dungeon master is they will give you the idea you will use the idea and then they will think you are brilliant for coming up with this really amazing idea right. where you didn't come up with it at all. You just like, you're just following their lead. Right. But as long as you don't say anything about it, they think you're the really smart one. Right. Right. <laughs> I think that one poll is definitely right. Uh, like exactly right. You just like completely keep a complete poker face and let them mm-hmm. uh, players will always overthink stuff too. And I've also found that um, despite your reluctance, Angela to, to sort of signpost stuff, Sometimes, actually, you're not like even when you think that something's completely obvious, it's they just completely skate over it. And we could actually afford to be even more obvious sometimes as game masters, right? That's fair, (laughs) you know. And and if they still go in another completely alternate direction that's more interesting than your idea, then you should always go with their idea. Oh, yeah, always, always. I mean, I, I have players who will come up with things that I'm like, what planet are you from? Why would you even think that's what's actually going on in the background? And then I've had players come up with ideas where, like, that is so much better than what I was thinking. I'm just going <laughs> to let them run with it now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
So one one thing that this uh, book got me thinking about is the gods and the powers and the personalities of the gods. So here in Swords and Ice Magic, the gods are very, it's very Greek in the sense that like, you know, they're, they, these are a bunch of like petty, uh, I guess. petty. Yes. <laughs> um, and here we have like, there's, there's the moment where the gods kind of create this like trap for Fafford and the gray mouser to like go through and like see all their exes and be shunned by them. Um, and then later on, we've got examples of gods possessing other people uh, to kind of further their own needs. Um, how do you feel about having the gods kind of playing a more active role in the the shaping of the world around them. You know, I was thinking about that too, as I was reading this. And I, I think if I were a player in a campaign that used gods in the way this book used gods, I would get super frustrated because yeah. I'm like, mm-hmm. they have no rules. They do things that are incredibly powerful, but if they could do that, why don't they just snap their fingers and, you know, do the thing they wanted to have happen anyway, you yeah. know, cause the rules seem so, arbitrary and you know while it sounds silly to want to apply rules to a fantastical setting there is definitely a difference between the way something can work in literature and the way it'll work at the game table sure yeah and i think that like D, at least through the first and the second editions was was pretty open-ended and kind of vague about that and it was mm-hmm. so then it made that kind of harder to adjudicate other than the, oh you got spells and if your god's angry something might happen right Whereas I think... Yeah, or you don't want to change your alignment. Right, right. Yeah, I think DCC is the game sort of in the trad range that has most successfully done that for clerics, made them sort of playable. Um, I don't know about, you know, like 5th edition. I haven't played 5th edition, so I don't really know how well it does there. Um, And there's obviously other games that are are more geared towards, like, you know, your characters sort of petitioning their deity. Uh, But this, you know, traditional D&D, I think, was a little weak on that. I think I think it it with D and D it comes down to your GM. Yeah. I, I played in a campaign of uh, a fifth edition D and D campaign where I played a dragonborn cleric who was a cleric of Cord. And when I chose that, I didn't realize that Cord actually has a problem with chromatic dragons. So we kind of had to come up with a reason why Cord would willingly accept. Uh, this blue dragonborn as his <laughs> cleric. And it we ended up having this, my character had this very playful relationship with her god, where as they advanced in the campaign, she actually got to have some conversations with him. He called her Sparky uh, and, you know, would just give her these nudges in the direction. But he was, she definitely played him as a much more, down-to-earth god, I guess, is a better way to put it, where he's like, sure, he was a god, and he had power, and he could see a lot of things, and he could nudge her and give her some some boons and benefits, but he was a minor player on the godly scale of the, the game. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was actually a lot of fun, uh, but it's definitely, I think you have to be careful about how you implement it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how you bring it into play. Right, right. And I think like certain games like RuneQuest, like because the setting is built in where the religions are built in, whereas it, in D&D, and we've talked about this, Jeff, in the past, the cleric and the religion seems very grafted on. It's sort of mm-hmm. an afterthought. Um, you know, we don't live in a 
completely secular nation, but there's this divide between like our day to day life where we don't necessarily think about that too much. And then once a week, you know, we go in, it's not, it doesn't feel as deep rooted as like, you know, in Europe with, you know, these ancient cathedrals and you walk by and everything's reminding you that this is a Catholic country or it used to be, right. a Catholic, you know, um, and so it's harder to get into that mind frame of like, oh, our life is shaped by our gods, you know, as these sort of intelligent entities as, as opposed to a more abstract force, right? At least for me. Um, yeah. You know, but um, was there something else that, the, that struck you, Jeff, about how the gods were treated in the story as well? Uh, no, I think I kind of, um, yeah, between possession and kind of creating that little punishing trap. I was just kind of curious what you guys thought about incorporating things like that into your games. Right. I did think one thing was interesting when the, when the God was, uh, when, when Loki with like Loki's fire. Um, and then like, it was like leading them that, that, that torch was like leading them where they, where they needed to go. Yeah. I thought that was kind of a, a fun little, little touch. Yeah. To throw in there. Right. I like that also that, uh, Mouser is trying to rationalize. Well, maybe there's a flaw in the wood, so the sap is like going certain, so it's causing it to spark a little bit more on this torch. <laughs> <way. laughs> you know? Totally, totally. <laughs> so. I actually did enjoy the part of the story where 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 Gray Mouser was basically like, "Okay, what 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 did I say?" You know, like nobody's telling him what he actually said. Right. And the few people who like he finally gets to admit it, they're just like, Oh yeah, I was I was drunk, I blacked out, or right. oh yeah, I, I spaced out right, and right. I just saw everybody applauding, so I just started applauding too. Right, right, right. And finally it's the old mingle wharf is like, ah, oh, that's terrible. That's why I left the mingles in the first place. It's just like, you know, people just like getting themselves all hyped up, talking out of their asses. <laughs> you know, right. So, yeah, basically yep. sending them on a suicide mission. Right, like, I don't oh, approve of that. Okay, yeah. let's see if we can fix this. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, Angela, before we wrap this up, was there any kind of last thing that you were thinking about this story that you wanted to express? I, I find the, I find the, the, you know, the whole concept of the Appendix N and these books that were, were, um, you know, uh, these books that were so influential on the hobby and, beginning and there was part of me as i was first reading this and was struggling with the way women were treated and all of that i'm like this is why i had so many problems in the 80s mm -hmm. you know like because it, it fed into this attitude of female characters are just objects and it's like it's taken us so long to start getting out of that and to yeah. have you know, to, to provide a space that's much more open for more of us to to have our heroes in play in these in these stories. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm with you 100. percent Yeah, yeah. It it and they, and especially kind of coming from a 2020 perspective and going back and reading some of the stuff. Like, there's some stuff that I'm just like, wow, I cannot believe that this was kind of such a common such a common theme in these stories. Yeah. Right. I guess the lateral thing, and you know, obviously we're not cultural studies majors, or maybe we are, but we don't have enough time to do this. Like, <laughs> is to just compare like comparative media, like at the same time, and say like, is this like actually a common attitude, or is this specifically a science fiction and fantasy attitude? Right. right. You know, I remember growing up in those times, and you know, we're all, you know, we're, but you know, we were younger, so we did. We sort of this is stuff that soaked into the background of us, but we weren't necessarily consciously yeah. looking for this kind of stuff when we were younger. You know, right? Thinking exactly. About it. So. You know, this oh, is, totally. This yeah. is part of why I didn't really gravitate towards these books in the 80s when I was a teenager and they, they would have been around and available. Because, I mean, my father had an extensive 
extensive library of books of fantasy and science fiction from all over the place. And there was some of it that I picked up and read and some of it that, you know, and devoured and some of it, I'm just like, yeah, this is boring. This is all, this is all about boys. I don't care. You know? <laughs> I mean, and even similarly, like, you know, growing up as a gay teenager who was playing role-playing games, it not only did it feel like it was stuff for boys, it felt like it was stuff for straight boys. Yes. You know, like it yeah. really wasn't like, it wasn't for me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, while she's become much more problematic uh, in the modern times, but I enjoyed a lot of Marion Zimmer Bradley's stuff mm-hmm, from right. around that same period. Um, I cannot remember the author's name. I want to say it's Anne N. something, um, but she actually wrote a very a book from like 1980, 1979 that was about a group of gamers that got transferred into a fantasy realm. And I was like, Oh, this is really cool. And right. you know, there were, there were other stuff being written back then that was a little right, broader right. with that other might've been, uh, that might've actually been quite keep with Andre Norton. That might've yes, been. That right. is exactly it. Right. Right. Her so. name just totally escaped me. I'm like, a N. Right. <laughs> right. That was actually literally the first D and D novel because she uh, she could she Gary Gygax sort of introduced her and play, uh, played D and D with her a little bit. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like women, queer folk, folks of color. It's like we've all been here since the beginning. Yeah, right. It's just you know we've had to we've had to push and fight a little bit to make space for us to have characters and stories that are are a little more relevant than just the. You know. Right, or else we have to see. And we've our... had to put up with a bunch of shit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or we have to find a way to see ourselves in characters that aren't us, which is just something we do every day. When you know. Yeah. You know. So. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So we are just about out of time. So Angela, if folks want to find you online and uh, check out what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, you can find all of my articles at gnomestew.com. Um, there's a few older articles at RoguePrincessSquadron.com, but we're hoping to actually fold those into the Gnome Stew archives at some point. Great. Um, and so you can find anything Gnome Stew related at GnomeStew.com, at Gnome Stew on Twitter. Um, and you can find me personally on Twitter and Instagram as orikes 13 O-R-I-K-E-S-13. Although, as always, I do warn people, Instagram is mostly just pictures of my cats. <laughs> That's what it's for. <laughs> More uh, ary- or- oryophilia. Oryophilia. It's a really good word, actually. <laughs> there you go. Hi, guy, Jackson. <laughs> All right, and uh, so Hoy, how can folks find us? Right, if you want to drop us a note, give us some feedback. You can do it at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com we're also on twitter at, at appendix underscore n we're also on facebook uh MeWe, and some of the other social platforms uh do drop us a review on itunes or your podcast of choice it does help people find us and jeff how about our patreon Yes, you can go to patreon.com slash appendix and book club and show us your support there. And I would say that uh, being recently unemployed due to COVID-19, we would really appreciate any support you have to give. Um, But we also recognize this is a challenging time for all of us. So, Um, but yeah, if you're able to show us your support uh, financially, please do. Um, If not, also just like let us know what you think of the show by sending us emails and things like that. Um, Our patrons are able to join us for patron book clubs prior to the recordings. And we'd like to thank Jeremy Harper and Adam Stiers for joining us 
for our patron book club before this recording. And we also want to give a shout out to a few of our patrons. Uh, thank you to Andrew Sternick, Nacho Sevilla, Mason Coffey, Kurt Hockenberry, William Suter, Robbie Fioto, and Daniel Bishop. Thank you so much for your support. All right. And coming up, our next two episodes, episode 70, will be on Jack Vance's Star King. And episode 71 will be on Clark Ashton Smith's Poseidonus. Good times, good times. Angel, thank you for coming on. It's been awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. It's been so great. All right. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>